Well, this morning we're going to continue through our series on the book of Matthew. And um, we just uh, talked about the wise men. Now we're at the opening of chapter 3 here. And this message is entitled, Repent, the King has arrived. Repent, the King has arrived. Before we get started, let's pray together one more time. Father, I just pray now, Lord, that you would speak to us. You are the Lord, you are the King. You have something, God, to say to us. I pray, Lord, whatever that is, for every individual in this room, you might speak it loud and clear in these next few moments, Lord. Oh, that we might walk out, Lord, changed, God, to the people whom you desire us to be. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 3. And as you do, I want to read um, some scripture from you from the book of Daniel. So we're going to talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a remarkably simple message. And one of the core aspects of his message was repentance. Repent. And I think one of the most beautiful examples of repentance in all the Bible is from Daniel chapter 9. Remember, Daniel was a Jew uh, who was, uh, lived during the Babylonian exile. You remember the exile? The, the Israel was kicked out of the land of promise by God because they broke the covenant. And Daniel is experiencing God's judgment by being, uh, by being in exile in the land of Babylon, away from the land of promise. And in, this, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prays an incredible prayer of repentance, asking God to show mercy on his people. And this is what he says, Daniel 9, 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law, and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like has what been done like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Verse 17, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the, prop, to the prayer of your servant and to, the plea, and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, Make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we dare not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. You know, there's a lot we can learn from the prayer of Daniel. That last sentence is very important. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, because they didn't have any. But because of God's mercy. 
That's our, that is our only plea for God before God. Not our righteousness, but God's mercy. But God is so gracious that through Jesus Christ, if we will implore his mercy, he'll lavish it upon us. So that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. Repent, the king has arrived. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's words. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. When he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism... He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The word of God. You may be seated. This message is divided up into two simple parts. Number one, we're going to talk about John the Baptist. Number one, we're going to talk about the man. And number two, we're going to talk about the message. The man and the message. So first here, we're going to talk about the man, the man of John the Baptist. This is our introduction to John the Baptist here in the book of Matthew. The ministry of John the Baptist is recorded in all four Gospels. And it is clearly understood that... uh, The ministry of John the Baptist was a significant part of Israel's history and of the story of Christ. And in fact, later in this same book, in Matthew 11, Jesus will say this. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John was no ordinary person. He is... He was the greatest of all human beings ever born up until the coming of Christ. John lived on the cusp of a new age. John lived at the dawning of a new era. The infiltration of the kingdom of God into the present fallen order. John the Baptist arose as the greatest of all men before Christ. And that's astounding, by the way, if you think about it. Uh, and another part, it says that John, uh, it was the Elijah that was to come. And there's a prophecy about that, which we're going to read in a little bit. But it's astounding to think about the greatness of John. Because oftentimes we don't think of him in that terms. It says that he, he came in the, the spirit and power of Elijah. But think about 
John compared to Elijah. Elijah worked all these incredible miracles. Elijah had an incredible ministry. John didn't perform a single miracle. And yet it's said that he's the greatest who ever lived up until the time of Christ. What that means then is that being great in the eyes of God is not working miracles. It's being bold and courageous and obedient to God. That's how you're great before God. The Gospel of Luke tells us a lot more about John than than Matthew chose to. John's father was Zechariah, who was a priest. And his wife, uh, his mother was Elizabeth. And uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were unable to conceive. But being chosen by lot, as was the custom, uh, to offer incense in the temple, which was a high honor for the priests, uh, Zechariah was visited by an angel while he was offering incense in the temple. And this is what it says in Luke one thirteen. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so we see that before John was even born, what God intended for John. John was born for a very specific mission. A mission that he, was, that he was born for, that he existed for. What do you exist for? What's the calling that God's placed on your life? Are you doing it? Are you living it? God was, John was born for this purpose. To prepare the way for Christ. And that's what Matthew says as well, in addition to Luke, in all four Gospels. All four Gospels explicitly connect John the Baptist's ministry with Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 40, verse 3, which Matthew, which Matthew quoted there in, verse, in Matthew 3, 3. That he had come to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the way of Christ. His, mess, his, his mission was to preach a message of repentance, to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. He was sent to melt the hard heart of the Jews so that they could be molded by Christ. John was sent to pour fuel on the hearts of the Jews so that they could be ignited by Christ. He was sent to warn them of the coming wrath and to exhort them to flee to the only one who could deliver them from that wrath, the Messiah, the King, the Christ. And it said there in, the, in, the, in Luke, in, in the angel's prophecy to Zechariah, that John the Baptist did that in the power of, of, and spirit of Elijah. And why is that so important? <laughs> it's very important. It's important because of the prophecy. Not just any prophecy, but the prophecy at the end of the book of Malachi, which is the last chapter of the Old Testament. In other words, the last words that were written in the, in the Old Testament, in the Bible, before the coming of Christ, prophesied of John the Baptist. 
Malachi 4, 1 through 6. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So notice what the message is. The message is what? There's two messages. For who? For two different kinds of people. The wicked will be burned up, but the righteous will leap like calves in the stall. In what? In the same event. In the same person. In the same work of God. In the coming of Christ. Verse 4 says, remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's the final words of the Old Testament. Why is this striking? Because the Old Testament closes with what? It closes with, a remember Ezra and Nehemiah? Malachi is one of these final prophets. He's the last prophet before 400 years of silence where there was no prophet of Israel until the coming of Christ. Remember during the days of, of those days, if you read the book of Malachi, after the exile where the Israel was kicked out of the land because they broke God's covenant, after 70 years through the decree of King Cyrus, God allowed a remnant of the people to enter back into the land of Israel. But then when you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and then the prophecy of Malachi, what you see is that even this remnant of people who were judged and, utter, and the nation of Israel was utterly destroyed because of their disobedience to God and his covenant. And even after, after, all, after the judgment of God and his wrath poured out from the destruction of Jerusalem, and even after his faithfulness in bringing back a remnant after 70 years, they come back into the land. And what do they do? They're still disobedient. And the prophet Malachi prophesies of a day when the Lord would act. And he would act in two ways. There would be those who fear his name, that an Elijah would come, who would turn the hearts back to his people, their people back to their God, and the rest will be destroyed. And that's how the Old Testament ends, a prophecy of destruction. This warning sounds a lot like John the Baptist's message. Who warned you of the wrath that is to come? That's what John said. This is John. This is his message. So we know that John is a direct fulfillment of this prophecy. In fact, we see this in another way right here in the same, right here in the same passage where it says that John, verse 4, wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Why did Matthew, why does it matter to us what John wore? Why did Matthew tell us that? Well, he told us that because of 1 Kings 1.8, where these people encountered a prophet and they said he wore a garment of hair with a leather belt around his waist. 
And he, and he, I think that was King Ahaz, said, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. John wore the same thing Elijah wore. Why? Because John was saying, I am he. I am the Elijah that is to come to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. Lest God strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. John came to prepare the way of the Lord. And I pray this morning that as we teach through John's message, perhaps this very day John may prepare the way of the Lord in somebody's heart in this room. Prepare the way for you to receive the Lord. That's what he came to do. That's the man. The man, John the Baptist. And number two, the message. The message. How do you prepare the way for a cosmic king? Here's how. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how you prepare the way. Repent. It's a very important word. It's worth discussing at length. The underlying Greek word is metanoia. You know, we have the word metamorphosis. It means to change, right? Metanoia. The Greek, the, the, the Greek in the most basic sense, it means a change of mind, right? It means a change of mind. So the bare minimum of what John is saying is that in the way to prepare for the coming king requires a change of mind. A change of mind about what? Well, a change of mind about everything. About the way you think, about the way you act, about the way you live, about your attitudes, about your beliefs, about your behaviors. To change your mind in view of the coming king. A change of mind about what and who your life is about. About who calls the shots in your life. A change of mind about everything. Repent, turn, change. That's what the word means. But it's evident also from the old Uh, From the whole context and from the Old Testament background, out of which John is certainly speaking, because John would have been profoundly familiar with the Old Testament, including passages uh, like the Daniel 9 passage that we've read and other things like that. He would have known the Old Testament background about the call of God to repent and to turn. That, That is that it's more than just a change of mind. The repentance that John is talking about is not just a, a mental exercise. But it involves the totality of one's being, one's heart, one's mind, one's thoughts, one's affections. They all must change in view of the coming king and in view of his kingdom. It's It's a complete turnaround of one's entire being. It means seeing how one's former ways were wicked, hurtful, destructive, rebellious against God the Almighty. It involves guilt. Brokenness, genuine agreement with God concerning one's sin, and an earnest desire to turn away from it. You know, we live in a day of just, you know, where like people will do anything to rid themselves of guilty feelings. As if guilt's the worst possible thing. Guilt's not bad if you're guilty. In fact, if you're guilty and never feel guilt, something's wrong. We should feel guilt. For our sin. We should feel guilty when we are guilty of rebelling against God, of breaking others. The guilt should lead us to repentance, should lead us to seek somehow, some way that we may be cleansed from our guilt. And that is not found inside ourselves. It can only be found outside ourselves. 
and someone who atones for guilt, who deals with guilt. Repentance is turning away from one's sin and one's self, and it's looking to God, right? That's what, it's, it's a change of mind, it's a change of life. You can't, you can't face two directions at the same time. You're either fundamentally looking towards yourself and your interests for yourself, or you're fundamentally looking to God and to His interests for yourself. You can't serve two masters. You can't look two ways at the same time. What is the fundamental posture of our heart? Is it towards God or is it toward anything else? And, it, and so repentance involves seeing our sin and our need of forgiveness and mercy and, under, and, 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 and feeling the weight of that such that we come to God pleading for mercy, not on our righteousness, but according to His sheer mercy. One of the greatest examples of repentance is Psalm 51 in the Bible, which is David's psalm of repentance. After he did what? Committed adultery and then murdered a man to cover it up. What does a man who did that have to say to God? This is what he says, Psalm 51, 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will single out of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, David knew that at the end of the day, there was nothing that he could do. To make right what he had done. All he could do was plead for mercy from God. And in fact, in the Old Testament law, had sacrifices that you would offer as as a picture of atonement of your sin. But even that, David acknowledges, and this this pushes us, I believe, toward where where the New Testament is going to take us. Where, where, where Christ's sacrifice fulfills the Old Testament sacrifices, whereas, whereas we don't have to offer sacrifice for sin anymore because Christ offered it once and for all. But see, David even acknowledges that, and he's living under the old covenant, under the old law. David says, you don't, David says right there, he says, you won't be pleased with a burnt offering, God. That's not what you really want. What you want is a broken heart. A heart that truly sees the weight and guilt of its sin and just comes pleading for mercy. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And here, get this. This is the the scandal of grace. Jesus was, uh, David was truly repentant. He really was. And God forgave him. There's going to be an adulterous murderer in heaven. Why? The grace of God. That's why. It's scandalous. It's scandalous of grace. God, how could you forgive him the same way he can forgive you? Sheer grace of God. Similarly, the prophet Joel foretells foretells of the coming day of the Lord. The wrath of God do a rebellious covenant-breaking people. And this is what Joel says in Joel 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, 
with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. You see that? Joel says basically the same thing David says. Rend your hearts and not your garments. God's not looking for just external shows. He's looking for broken hearts. People that feel the weight and guilt of their sin and come pleading with God for mercy. And David said, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So that's what repentance is. It's the rending of our hearts. It's the weeping over sin. It's a pleading for mercy, knowing that it's undeserved. But the glory of it is that a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Even an adulterous murderer or anyone else who truly repents and turns to God and pleads with him for mercy. So repent, John says. He, repent. he says repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Or as we're saying here, repent, for the king has arrived. Repent, for the king has arrived. How? Think about it. Think about John's logic, right? So that's the logic. Repent. Why should I repent? For the kingdom of God is at hand. What's John saying? What does that mean? Well, he's got to be saying this. You better repent. Why? Because the king is here. And what are you going to do? Are you going to stand before the king? In unrepentant, hard-hearted, stiff-necked self, you're going to stand before the king? What are you going to do when you stand before the king with a hard heart and a stiff neck? Here's what's going to happen. He's going to shatter you to pieces. Repent. Some people think, and I've heard this before, they really think, well, if there is a God, you know what? When I stand before him, I'm going to ask him why he did this, this, and this, and why this happened, and da, da, da. Let me tell you something. When you stand before God, you won't be asking any questions. God is going to be asking the questions. He's the king. We have a far, far too small view of God. When we stand before God, if our sins are not forgiven, we will be speechless, guilty before the king. So what did John say? Here's what he said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the only way we can stand before him. Would you be prepared for the king? Here's how you do it. Repent. Repent. Trust in this kind, merciful, and gracious king who... He himself said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. Embrace him as king in this life, and he'll own you as his son and daughter in the next. That's how it works. But he's the king. And we have to repent and turn and come to him. This was John's message. That's the message that he proclaimed. And it said that all of Jerusalem and Judea, verse 5 and 6, uh, and about the Jordan came, and they were baptized uh, in the river, confessing their sins. So John came to do what? To prepare Israel. And bless God, he preached this message. And many people heard it. And guess what? Many people came. 
And they did what? They repented. They heeded the message of John. They prepared their, they pre- the way in their hearts was prepared for the coming of the king. And if you read in other parts of the Gospels, you see that many of the people that were coming to John were who? The prostitutes. The tax collectors. The people in society that the more you know, uppity people were saying, those, those sinners over there. Well, guess what? It was those sinners over there who were doing what? Who were being forgiven. Because they did what? They humbled themselves before the king. And they turned. And they asked for forgiveness and mercy. And they received it. And right here in this passage, we see that not everyone repented. Not everyone repented. And so, the, so here's the glory of it, right? The glory of it is this. Is that Jesus Christ came specifically to save who? The undeserving. Why? Because there are no deserving. But Jesus said, I came, I came not, for the, I came not uh, for the sick. I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. I came not to, uh, for the righteous, but for sinners. And of course, if you read that passage in context, what he's saying is he's saying, he's not saying that there's righteous people. He's saying that there's people who think they're righteous. And if you think you're healthy, you won't go to a doctor. But it's only the people who know that they're sick who go to a doctor. It's only the people who know that they're sinners who will come to me for forgiveness. That's the only kind of people that can be saved, a repentant people, a humble people. But not everybody repented. In verse 7 there, it says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It's not 100% clear what purpose the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming for uh, with, to, to, uh, for John's baptism. Um, the, the, the grammar could mean that they were just coming to where he was baptizing, not that they were coming for baptism. It's not sure. It's not clear. But regardless, when they show up, John has some stiff words for them. And really, this prepares the way for the rest of the gospel where we'll see that these are the ones that Jesus butts heads with the most. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders. And why are they so condemned in the gospels? Well, the reason is because by and large, these groups were little more than religious pretenses. They had the trappings of religion, but they didn't love God and they didn't love people. And it turns out, as I've said before, there's a there's a there's a there's a tunnel to heaven at the there's a tunnel to hell at the gate of heaven. Hell will be full of religious people who never repented of their sins, loved and served God and others. You see, they didn't love God; they loved the acclaim and respect and honor that they receive for being especially religious in a religious society. And he calls them a brood of vipers. And it turns out, 2,000 years ago, being called a snake still wasn't a compliment. It associates one with Satan himself, the one who, far from delighting in the glory of God, sought glory for himself. 
And we are his children if we do as he did. If we seek not the glory that comes from above, but the glory and praise and honor of men and of ourselves. Far from having a humble heart of repentance, they look condescendingly on others. Externally, they proclaim true religion, but inside their hearts were dark as smut. And despite their religious pretenses, rather than loving God, they love praise. They love money. They love power. They love prestige. Notice the refrain there. It's about what they loved. What do you love? Beware what you love. Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. You can only love one thing with that kind of love. What do you love? So what do we do? What did John tell them to do? This is what he said. He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It, it literally reads... Produce fruit worthy of or suitable to repentance. There's a certain type of life that repentance demands. There's a certain type of life that accords with repentance. And that's what the Christian life is. That's what what the Christian life is. Repentance is not something that you just do one time. Being a Christian doesn't mean you have a one-time religious experience. Being a Christian means that every day you wake up and you repent of your sins and you believe in Jesus Christ. That's what being a Christian is. That's the, that's the ultimate ground of assurance. The way I know that I'm saved is not because I had a religious experience a long time ago. The way that I know that I'm saved today is that I woke up today and repented of my sins and said, God, forgive me and God, help me and God, help me love you today with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how you know that you're saved today. Is you woke up today and repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life is the repenting life. It is a heart of continual, humble acknowledgement of one's sin and an active turning away from that sin to Christ in faith. And such a heart then is evidenced, John says, by a life that bears fruit in keeping with repentance. There is a life that is manifestly the repenting life. Let me tell you something. People who look at your life from the outside, do they know you as a repenter? Do they know you as someone who is quick to acknowledge their faults and quick to confess their sins and mistakes and legitimately tries to honor the Lord better in those areas of their life? Are you known as a repenter in your life? Bear fruit, John says, and worthy, being worthy of repentance. You see, many of the Jews thought that just because they were Jews, that they were God's chosen covenant people, that they would be fine. That they would be fine because their name was on the genealogical list of Abraham. And oh, the people who think that they're going to be fine because their name is on a church membership roll somewhere. But as John told them, he tells us this very day, God can raise up names on a church membership roll out of these stones. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
Why? Because the king has arrived. He says, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Wrath is coming. Because the king has arrived. And that's the final part there in verse 11 and 12. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see, John, Jesus said John was the greatest man to ever be born. And you know what John said? John said, I... The man who's coming after me, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. What does that tell you about Jesus Christ? And John's message was that Jesus was going to be a separating force. And by the way, Jesus said the same exact things about his own ministry. He would baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire. It's not 100% clear whether fire goes with the Holy Spirit as in one baptism or whether it's talking about two separate baptisms, one uh, of spirit and one uh, of fire for, you know, in judgment. It's hard to say for sure. But John tells us this important reality that the king and his kingdom will be a separating force. Jesus, when he came, remember there's a part where Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And it's true. That's what Jesus did. Jesus, Jesus John says, is a, thresh, a threshing uh, fork. And they would harvest the grain, and then, but all the, the, the heads of the grain would be mixed with the chaff, you know, the stuff that you don't want. So they'd go on a hilltop, and they'd pick up the grain, and they'd throw it up into the air, and the wind would blow away the chaff. But the grain would fall to the ground, and they'd gather it. And Jesus said, my ministry is like that. John the Baptist says Jesus' ministry is like that. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. The wheat goes into the barn. The chaff goes into the fire. You see, people who say that the God of the Old Testament is all wrath, while Jesus of the New Testament is all mercy, they're not reading their Bibles. God has been the same yesterday, today, and forever. Go read the Old Testament. It's the same. God's the same. Those who humble themselves and turn and come to him pleading for mercy, God is mighty to forgive. Those who harden their hearts, who go on about doing whatever they want to do, who don't acknowledge and feel the weight and guilt of their sin, they're destroyed. That's what the Bible says. So John's message is relevant for today, and with this I close. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message. It's so simple. It's so simple. All you have to do is repent. The king is coming. He came one time already. And now is the time of patience where the message of the gospel goes out into all the world. Repent, repent. The king has come. And the king's coming back. He's coming back. But if, you don't, but if you don't repent before he comes back, then it'll be too late. So repent. 
He's a kind and he's a merciful king. And he offers full citizenship into his kingdom if you come and surrender to his gracious rule. And I pray that you would today. Let's pray.